morning, everyone. I am so thrilled to be with you today. I have never preached in Louisiana before. Well, that's not entirely true. I have prayed in Louisiana before. Uh, We'll get to the sort of my life story in a little bit, but um, I spent a long time as a Navy chaplain, and we were stationed in Gulfport, Mississippi, and one of my jobs was to be the official designated prayer at all of the ship christenings, including in New Orleans. So I have been here sort of, just barely in Louisiana, but it is delightful to be with you. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer as we prepare our hearts for preaching. Lord, thank you for all of your wonders. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for this place and for this time. Thank you, Lord, that you call us together to be your people, to worship you in spirit and truth. And we pray that you'd be with us as we do that today. Help us, Lord, to see you. Open our eyes and our hearts that we might hear you, that we might see your glory, that we might be built up in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by telling you a little bit about my life story. Uh, I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1958, and all the math people can figure out how old I am. Um, And I was born in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, and I joined the church when I was seven years old, made a profession of faith there, and uh, we had... In those days, we had a fire-breathing dragon. I mean, a pastor who... Okay. And so I have no memory of anything other than, okay, it's time to walk down the aisle. And so all of my cousins and I did, and we all joined the church there together. But for some reason, one of their dates is different from mine, and I don't know why. But anyway, and... We walked down, and and then we met with the session, and we had the the seven questions, you know, and I had to guess at what all the answers were because they didn't prepare me for it. We just met with the session and asked the questions like, (gasps) and apparently I got the right answers. I would not recommend that as the way to do that, but at any event, joined the church, seven years old, and then I was there for a long time. Well, you know, until I'm older anyway. And as I got into, let's say, junior high and high school age, all the same questions that, that people have began to percolate. And so, How do you really know that this stuff's true? <clears throat> you know, this is the 70s when everything seemed to be flowing away. You know, the, whatever the old landmarks were, were being washed away. And I began to to really struggle with the idea of scripture. And I looked in a a variety of directions and and I worried about this and worried about that and looked at this thing and looked at that thing. I I went to the church library and we we had a copy of Calvin's Institutes in the library. So I checked it out and I must have read at least two pages before bringing it back. I was, after all, a teenager. And I just really struggled with these things. And finally, I came to understand that there was no no authority that could tell me that the Bible was true. You can't find a book that's more authoritative than the Bible to tell you that the Bible is true. Because then the Bible wouldn't be true. We'll explain all that in a moment. But the only thing, The only thing 
that could matter in the final analysis, the only thing that could make Scripture authoritative is the faithfulness of God, that the Bible is God's Word. And from there going on, I had a a sense of calling into the ministry, and uh, the Navy offered me a scholarship, which we'll come back to the Navy in a moment, but I turned it down. Parents may not have been terribly enthused about that. And went off to Covenant College. Anybody's ever heard of Covenant College here? A few hands, not so many, but a few. And there I met Laura Lee. And Laura Lee had one goal, um, and it was not graduating, although she did graduate. That was her parents' goal. Her goal was to marry somebody going into the ministry. Perfect. Okay. And so uh, we got married and so on. And then... We we did eventually graduate. I had to promise her dad that we would graduate and so on. And it came time to go to seminary. Now, if you're going to be a Presbyterian minister, you've got to do that. And I looked at a wide variety of seminaries, all of which shall remain nameless except one. And this one particular seminary was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or as I normally call it, uh, Philadelphia. If you've ever lived there in Philadelphia, you'll know. And that seminary was the Reformed Episcopal Seminary. And they had a series of of youth directors from that uh, seminary who worked for my father-in-law, Laura Lee's dad, who was pastor of a Reformed Presbyterian church there. And I was very impressed. I was at some graduations, and I met faculty people. That seminary in those days had only one question for admission, one They didn't care if you were a college graduate. They didn't care if you were a graduate of somebody else's seminary. They didn't care what you were going to do. What they cared about was one thing. Are you willing to test every question by Scripture? If you were willing to test every question by Scripture, you could come be a student there. And if you weren't, go somewhere else. They didn't want you. And so with plenty of people, I entered there in 1981. And we had three years of systematic theology, which is a lot. And uh, we had to uh, read Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology. If any of you are big theology fans, you could pour water on it and it would still be dry. But we had to, as part of the systematic theology class, memorize all of the texts, the proof texts for all the doctrines. And we would have an exam on that every Friday in systematic theology. You had to be able to write out the verses. You, you had to know them. It wasn't enough that you had the right theology. It was, can you prove what you're saying from the Bible? We took English Bible classes. We had Daniel. We had Mark. We had Revelation. We may have had more, but I remember those three anyway. And we had all of the regular Greek and Hebrew courses that you normally have in seminaries. We studied the Bible and the original languages. And uh, we had some just incredible classes. And I can remember uh, one of my teachers, Bishop Herter, handing out a a piece of paper. He he loved these pieces of paper. And they would be typed on like normal and then all the way around the edges. And there was no blank paper on there. And I, I have no idea how he managed to do that. But he would give us 31 interpretations of a particular verse. Like, all right. And then he would describe all of these verses, and you had to do with them. You had to really struggle with Scripture. You had to spend time in it. We spent quite a bit of time simply studying Scripture. 
Now, I think that part of my story may be a very normal story. That is to say, people struggle with scripture. Not everybody goes to seminary and not everybody spends all that time studying Greek and Hebrew and so on. But there are people who struggle with scripture and they ask, what is it? Where does it come from? What do you do with it? Those are three questions. Today's goal is to answer the first two, and only the first two, because we don't have time to get to all three of them. But we want to look at these first two questions. What is Scripture, and where does it come from? And then, Lord willing, uh, you have me back uh, next week, and you all show up. We'll get to the, the third question, what do you do with it? Let's begin with that first question. What is Scripture? The word itself, Scripture, simply means the following from the American Heritage Dictionary, available online. A noun, a sacred writing or book, or a passage from a writing or book, or, finally, the writings collected as the Bible. And the etymology is very fun. I like this. It's from Middle English. We love things from Middle English. From late Latin, scriptura. From Latin, the act of writing. It's the stuff that's written down. From scriptus, a past participle of scribere, to write, see the word scribe. You go, oh, scribe. I know that word from the New Testament. It's simply the stuff that's written down. Scripture is simply the sacred writings that we call the Bible. And here's what the Bible says about scripture. From 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And I'll be reading from the ESV. All scripture, that is to say, all of this stuff that's written down, is breathed out by God. Some of you may remember the word inspired, inspiration, and I'll occasionally say that by accident because I didn't grow up using the ESV. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're going to be looking today only at those first few words. All scripture is breathed out by God. So scripture, the book, right? the writings start with the idea that all scripture is God-breathed. And then Paul, being Paul, also adds another idea, which is that it's profitable. And we'll get the profitable part next week. It's profitable for all kinds of good things. But let's take these assertions separately. First comes the words, all scripture. Now, how do you know what is and is not scripture? Some of you might say, well, I've got my trusty ESV and I open it up and there in the front, let's see, what do we have when we open the front? All of my collected bulletins. Oh, look, we have contents and there's 66 books there, the Old and New Testament. Or if you prefer, you might have the NIV or the New American Standard or the King James Version. You've got all of those books and you can say, I can find those 66 books arranged in order and that's how I know what scripture is. And that's an excellent answer. However, some people are content to trim a little bit here and take a little bit out. Or maybe a lot here or there. You know the story of the young person that went off to college and dad said to him, don't let them take Jonah out of your Bible. None of you look like you know this story. So he goes off to college, he's in college, he comes back and dad says, well, did you let them take Jonah out of your Bible? And he says, no, but being the wag that he is, he says, I took it out of yours. Like what? 
And he opened Dad's Bible and discovered that before he'd gone off to college, the son had clipped the book of Jonah out of the Bible. And it had been gone from Dad's Bible all the time he was away at college, but Dad had never noticed because, although Dad cared about it, he didn't actually read it. Sometimes we take parts out by just not reading them. If you go to a church that uses the Revised Common Lectionary, there are substantial portions of Scripture that are not read, including Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about, by grace are you saved by faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. They've clipped that part out. You don't read that part in church. And there are others who clip out other parts here and there, things that they don't like and so on, and I could go on, but you get the idea. So some folks are busy clipping things out of the all scripture, and then other folks say, well, you know, the Bible's not really enough. And so if you go off to Salt Lake City and you sign up for a tour to go see the Mormon tabernacle and the temples, what will they say to you? Oh, well, we like the Bible. We just, we just have another testament of Jesus Christ called the Book of Mormon. Oh, all right, I suppose. Or you might go to some other church and they might read to you the books called the Apocrypha. Roman Catholics have an extra 14 books that Protestants don't have. Or if you're bolder, don't throw anything at me, but if you're bolder and you go to... Uh, maybe an Islamic center, they will show you the Quran and they will say to you that the Quran is the word of God and you find a lot of the same characters in the Bible as you find in Quran, but the stories are all different. So in the Bible, Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead on the third day. In the Quran, some other guy dies on the cross. Anybody know who they think died on the cross? Judas. So they put Judas up on the cross, not Jesus. And instead of Jesus being the son of God, he's merely a prophet. Hmm. We could go a step further. We could talk about Buddhists. They have a mass of scripture that is not at all related to the Christian scriptures at all. Just the, this month in the Smithsonian Magazine in June, there's an article about some major exposition of Buddhist scripture that's going to go on display part of a 5,850 volume set of Buddhist scripture. That's a lot of stuff. And it was all hand done a thousand years ago. And that isn't related to Christian scripture at all. So when Paul says to you that all scripture is breathed by God, what's he saying? Is the all scripture that Paul tells us about all of those things that I've mentioned and more, does anything go? Can you say that anything scripture or anything you don't like is not scripture? Or is Paul talking about something that's a lot more specific? Jesus, whom John calls the word, and then the hymn that we just sang, which is one of my favorites, it's a very confusing hymn if you've never sung it before. Verse one's about Jesus, and then it talks about the Bible. And you have to pay attention to realize that it makes that switch in there. It's a wonderful hymn, but you really got to pay attention. Jesus, who John calls the word, gives us the Bible definition of scripture in Luke chapter 24. You know the scene. It's the day of resurrection. 
And Jesus is out walking towards the, the village of Emmaus with some of his disciples, and they're downcast, and he talks to them, and he asks them questions, and uh, they tell him, you know, they say, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on? And he says, no, tell me. And they give him the story of Jesus dying on the cross and so on. And they say, we had hoped that he was going to be the Messiah, as if to say it's all passed away. And then Jesus said to them, Luke 24, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When Luke talks about all the scriptures, when Paul talks about all the scriptures, what he's talking about is the Old Testament. But then he goes on. Later that evening, Jesus is with all the disciples in the upper room. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. We could point to other New Testament texts as well. But you get the point. When the New Testament talks about the scriptures, it is specifically speaking of the Old Testament, the books that we know as the 39 books of the Old Testament, the books that everyone in Judaism and in early Christianity knew as the same 39 books that we have today. The Law of Moses, five books. The Prophets, which for them included what we would know as the historical books. And then the Psalms, otherwise known as the writings, things like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and a few other things that we would normally put with the Prophets. The point is, it's those 39 books, and only those 39 books. That was the first list of scripture that the Christians had. And then that brings me to the second question. Where does scripture come from? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture, which we've talked about, although we'll come back to it in a moment, tells us that it's breathed out by God. Within the Old Testament itself, there are 446 statements that this is the word of the Lord. Things like, the word of the Lord came to me, saying. 186 say, this is the word of God. And one of my favorite phrases, because Handel set it to music so powerfully in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it those books that so many people not not here but those books that so many people want to ignore or skip over those books that so many people want to live out they are the very books that tell us about all the things that had to happen to the christ they're the word of god they're our old testament i did a quick study and found that the esv uses the word scripture 53 times and in every one of those cases, every one of those cases, it's in the New Testament 
talking about the Old Testament. The NIV adds one more reference in the book of Daniel in which Daniel's talking about Jeremiah, but the ESV uses a different word there. At any event, all of the New Testament speaks of all scripture being inspired by God, and it means the Old Testament is breathed out by God. All of those books that Well, like Jonah, somebody could clip it out of our Bible and we wouldn't notice. Or Jeremiah, which we're studying in Sunday school. I have to tell you, when I read Jeremiah, I get so sad. And yet, it's the word of God and it tells us what had to happen to Jesus. When the New Testament speaks of scripture, it's speaking of the Old Testament. However, the idea of scripture doesn't end there. Peter adds Paul to the list of scripture. Listen to what he says. Peter, in 2 Peter, says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Yes, there are which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here's Peter saying, all right, the Old Testament, absolutely. But Paul, he's writing these letters. And these letters, says Peter, they're scripture too. The apostle Paul says astonishing things about his own writings. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul says, my preaching to you, that's, that's the word of God to you. And then in that same book, 1 Thessalonians 5.27, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. I put you under oath. Read this. Colossians 4. When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Those are pretty direct and powerful statements. In church and in the synagogue, what you read with all official authority is scripture and Paul says you read as scripture this letter that I'm sending you today why can Paul say this because repeatedly he announces that he speaks in the name in the authority as an apostle as one sent to represent Jesus Christ himself The constant witness of the New Testament is that the Old Testament was about Jesus Christ, that it is the word of God, and that it is just as true to say the same about the New Testament. The New Testament claims for itself that this is that word of God that is about Jesus Christ. Since the beginning of the Christian church, that has always been accepted. Paul claims to have verbal inspiration, to be just as much God-breathed as the Old Testament is, and Peter agrees with that. It is evident, as John Stott says, I love this sentence, it is evident that Paul sees the New Testament as a Christian supplement 
to the Old Testament by the way that Paul combines quotes from the Old Testament and from Jesus as recorded in the New Testament, and he calls it all Scripture. And Paul's not alone. Listen to a verse that I'm sure most of you can quote, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And what is Hebrews? It's a sermon. It's a letter that's being written, and it comes to us as Scripture. Here's Hebrews claiming for itself that same authority that the Old Testament has. And we experience it that way. When you hear God's word read, when you, when you read it when you, at, at home or when you come to church and you hear it, it speaks to you. It grabs you by the ears and says, hey, I'm talking to you here. It's alive and powerful. From the time of the apostles... The standard for scripture has always been that it's first the Old Testament, but then we have the writings of all of the apostles. We've talked about Peter and Paul, but there's also Matthew and John, people who were instructed by Jesus Christ himself, people who were filled with the Holy Spirit in order to record, to interpret, and to apply to the lives of believers the great truths about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, as one writer puts it. And then you also have those writings that come from the apostolic circle. For example, Luke. Luke's Paul's disciple who writes Luke and the book of Acts. You have Mark who records Peter's preaching. You have Jude who's the brother of both James and Jesus. And, well, you have James who's the brother of both Jude and Jesus, and they write. And then you have Hebrews, and I know people love to argue about who exactly wrote Hebrews, but it clearly comes from somebody very close to Paul, even if it's not Paul. These books that come from that apostolic circle, the people who knew Jesus, they're the ones that come with the seal of God. These are the the authentic word of God, breathed out, inspired by him. They come from that circle of Jesus, from people that knew him in one way or another. Now, there are a few other safeguards as well to make sure that only authentic books were included. All the books in Scripture had to be consistent with all the other books. They weren't allowed to contradict one another. The voice of God had to be evident in the writing, as I've described, those those passages that, that just grab you, they speak to your heart. That had to be evident. And, of course, things that were going to be in the Bible had to be widely accepted throughout the early church. Point is, nobody got to sneak in some text that they'd just written. Nobody got to pull an apostle's air, name out of the air and just write a book using it. They didn't get to do that. Now, people outside the church certainly did that, but not the things that are going to be in the Bible. So all scripture... New Testament and Old Testament comes to us as inspired of God. This claim to be inspired, this claim to be God-breathed is the distinctive characteristic of what is written down. That word for inspired that I use all the time because that's what it was when, when I was a kid, it simply means that God breathed it. He, he spoke it in the same way that he speaks the creation into existence in Genesis 
chapter 1. That's that distinctive characteristic of Scripture. And, and as again, I say, we often use the word inspiration, but we could just as easily use the word spiration. <sighs> it's breathed. You could even use the word expired, not like the milk that sat on your shelf too long, but in the sense that it's breathed out, <sighs> expired. He's breathing it out. Scripture's not something that existed and then God breathes life into it. And I think that's an important point because sometimes we get that feeling. But God himself breathes his word out to us. Peter and Paul agree the human author is moved by the Holy Spirit as that human author spoke from God. Scripture originates in God's mind and is communicated by God's mouth by means of the Spirit. Now, we could say much, much more, and you can get into all kinds of discussions about how that works, but that's not our goal for today. Our goal for today, our takeaway from today's teaching is this, that when the apostle says all Scripture is God-breathed, that he means something very specific the Old Testament, and then the New Testament, that which we know as the 27 books of the New Testament. And those books, as we'll see next week, are wonderfully profitable. They are. But for now, I just want us to focus on what the books of Scripture are, that thing that I struggled with as a teenager. What is the Bible? That the Bible is something you cannot add to, you must not take away from it, that all scriptures, specifically those 66 books of the Bible, are that breath of God. They are that word of God. So as you hear and you read these books, you may be fully assured by the work of God, the, the Bible and so on, talks about the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. As you hear and read these books, you can be fully assured that they are the word of God breathed out by him to us. So let me encourage you to make it a point to take time to read it. Don't be like that dad that said, don't let them cut Jonah out of the Bible and then not notice that it was gone from his. Take time to come to church and, and hear the word read to you. The preacher preaches God's word to you, maybe a few words like I did today, or maybe a long passage as the case may be, but he's preaching to you, God's word, not something that he just makes up. Believe what it says, especially about Jesus the Savior, which is especially what it's about. And then I'm going to ask you if you'll come back next week to find out, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story, to find out how profitable it is when you do that. Let's go to the word, the Lord now in prayer. Father, what an amazing thing it is to think that you, you speak to us, that you communicate with us, that you've, you've breathed out your word, that you've spoken it to us. The word of the Lord has spoken it. Lord, what an amazing thing that is, that you would reach down to us to speak to us. Lord, thank you that you haven't left us comfortless, you haven't left us alone and ignorant, but that you give us your word to show us the things that we need to know, especially about our Savior Christ. Help us, Lord, to hear your word, to believe it, to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.